to our beautiful deep community, I want to assure you the deeper is going nowhere and the same incredible content will be released every week, but now through Arise. It is going to be less trauma heavy and more inspirational, uplifting, but it will still challenge and push you to grow. For all your deeper episodes, they are still available every fortnight. You can still get your deep hit with the deeper subscription. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. He called Triple Zero mm. after he killed her and he just told them what he did. And then the triple zero call operator was a bit like what? Like taken aback because he was so matter of fact about it. And the judge pointed out because he had zero remorse, like even during the court process it, to him, it was like a, like he genuinely felt like it was an acceptable course of action for him to take. It was deserved. Yeah. Yeah. In his mind, definitely. Welcome to the deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened. And ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is The Deep. Tarang is a wise and fierce feminist. And yes, he's also a man. A man who has endured one of the most painful things a brother ever can. His sister Nikita was murdered by her partner in the most brutal way. Her life stolen from her. Tarang's family robbed. This is a story of a man's fight for women's rights. This is where we would love all men to meet us women, and Tarang is leading the way. Through his grief and his rage, he continues to make real impact. Content warning. If you're suffering or triggered by the themes of this podcast, help services are listed in the show notes. Tarang, aka Nikita's brother, you are here to share a pretty horrific um, situation that happened to you in 2015. I'm really grateful that you are willing to to be open with it today. I know you're such an advocate for women. So firstly, thank you for being here. Thank you. Can you take us back to 2015? I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember it so vividly. Like I had I had just visited Tasmania, um, you know, and this was years before COVID, but like if, I don't know, everything pre-COVID just melted into one. Uh, and, and we could travel and I'd gone on this great trip to Tasmania and just come back. And the day before my sister uh, Nikita was killed, I uh, I sent her a text like, hey, are you coming over on Sunday? And this was on a Thursday, Thursday, the 8th of January. And she wrote back in the most earnest of ways. She was one of those people that was just just extra. So I'm like, 
hey, are you coming on Sunday? And we had no specific plans on Sunday. She was just coming to my apartment. We'd have lunch, maybe go for a walk. Nothing like it, there was no birthday. There's no anniversary. There's nothing special. And she wrote back, I wouldn't miss it for the world. And I was just like, that's a lot. Like that's not, that's not necessary. Just a simple yes or no would suffice. And so we, I texted her and she's like, I wouldn't miss it for the world. And I was really looking forward to that. And, uh, and that Sunday never came because the next morning her, her partner um, murdered her while she slept. And so we, we as a family, mum, dad, um, and myself, there was just the, the four of us, uh, we never got to see her again. And uh, sort of ever, ever since we sort of lived with that, um, that grief and that loss and that sense of what could have been for Nikki and that sense of, uh, of pain and, and suffering and, and not wanting other people to go through the same thing. You know, for me, that's, something that's so important. You said that I'm an advocate for women, but really I'm, uh, it, it's, it's, I guess that's part of it, but it's really just an advocate for more than just advocating for women. It's about human rights really. And that, Women's rights are human rights, but we're living somehow in a world where, uh, for some people, that's a foreign concept. How old was she? Uh, Nikki was 23. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, it's strange, right? Because when you turn 18, all of a sudden you're considered an adult. And, but in, in so many ways, she was just a girl. Like, yeah. I think she'd, she'd have turned 30 in June this year. And, she was just so sweet and innocent yet extra. And just like, I think of her as still, and maybe, maybe this is my own thing coming through because I was now on her elder brother, but she was still just a girl, you know, so innocent to the world and so naive in so many ways. Uh, and, and I think that was one of the things that uh, her, her killer was able to take advantage of. You know, like so, because we hear about so many women, um, one woman a week being killed. Uh, and, and you know, the, the morning that we're recording this uh, conversation, literally before we we um, we met to talk, I read about a woman being killed overnight, and a man has been taken into custody, and they're still figuring out who she is, and she has to be identified. And I just think there's another family, um, you know, who have to go through this pain, who have to figure out what's next. It's wild that you say that because I saw that too and we're recording on the 1st of February so I'm not sure when everyone will hear this but 20 we've lost 24 women in 2021 on the 1st of February right and we can get into this later about those statistics just never changing currently they're just rife but I want to go back for a moment. You said this was her partner. Mm. So was she living with this person? Yeah, yeah. And it was just a, um, it, it, it was just like, there's the, so, the similarities between how these women, including Nikki, meet their sort of their demise the end of their life is so uh glaringly similar you know there's it so often happens in the context of separation or breakups or divorce you know and and, and nikki had um had 
moved on in her life and she was trying to get out of that relationship. And it was, it was like the final kind of act of control. It was like this sense of such entitlement that like, if I can't have you, then no one can, and you can't be with anyone else. Like how dare you uh, leave me? How dare you screw up my life? Mm. It was like, it was like this strange thing. And I, and a lot of my advocacy, you know, is targeted specifically at men, because I think that something that, you know, I've tried to understand and learn from the women in my life, particularly starting with, with mum, who's always been such a strong female role model in my life is that, I think men men live around women, but women have to modify their behavior. I think women have to modify the way they speak, the way they act, the things that they say and do um, in order to not offend or hurt the sensibilities of men. Hundred percent. I think yeah, and I mean I'm telling you this as a woman, it feels strange for me, but like I think for men listening, it's so important that maybe they hear it from another guy and are like hang on, I'm going to think about what that means. I'm going to think about whether I do it. And this is not like, this is not me preaching from some position where I don't do this. I'm 33 going on 34. I live in the same world. I, I have consumed all the same stuff. I've I've watched the same movies, listened to the same music, played, you know, the same sports. It's It's a culture all around us. And so I've got to check myself just as much as anyone else. Because mm. why I don't know this is this is the I think a part of the problem. Why do I feel so grateful for you getting it? Like that's what the sad part, right? Because it's showing that it's a standout feature that you are wanting to advocate for for human rights and women's rights. But that because you're an anomaly, you're a unicorn, and that's pretty shit. Yeah, absolutely. It is so it is so easy, I think, to be generally to be a man, particularly if you're a straight man in a country like ours in Australia, um, that you know, there are certain privileges that are afforded to that, you know, that like if say if someone, you know, if a man, particularly a white man, commits, you know, is and this isn't. I'm not talking about allegations and things. I'm talking about like if they're convicted of a crime against a woman, mm. then they can continue their life. Mm. They can get another job. They can change. They might have to change careers slightly, but I mean, we're talking about like minor concessions here that they have to make, and that woman's life. Um, I'm not saying that it's ruined because I'm, I don't think that like an individual act by a man or a series of acts can necessarily ruin that woman's entire being, but it can impact her life and every decision she makes forever. And I think that is so inherently fucked up because that's showing just how unequal it is that, that if you do something and it, there's incontrovertible evidence showing that you did that thing, that you can somehow uh, still get on with your life, and there's a great there's a great example. So when when Nikki was murdered, that was on Friday the 9th of January, and then about five to six weeks later, uh, ABC ran a Q and A episode around domestic and family violence, and there was this rugby player. Uh, from somewhere in New South Wales, I don't remember his name, but he was on air as a perpetrator 
and he wasn't in the studio, but I remember him like Skyping in or something. And they asked him about what happened. And he kept saying, I was involved in an incident of domestic violence. And something didn't feel right to me. And I don't know, I can't say that it would have been the same pre Nikki's murder. But when he kept saying I was involved in, all I thought of was the things you can be involved in, like a car accident or some kind of mistake. Whereas he had, so for context, he had repeatedly physically assaulted and bashed his former female partner and she had AVOs against him and, you know, she had gone in and out of court and family counselling. This wasn't like an isolated thing. This was like a pattern of abusive behaviour and violent behaviour by this guy. And then even when they were talking to him about it and he was being almost celebrated for taking responsibility, he was just saying I was involved in it. And it was like, to me, like there are critics who will say about me that like, oh, you're very particular about the words and the language. But I think in this scenario, it matters because he made a choice to do what he did, right? He didn't have, he didn't have like any of those legal defenses going on. He just, he has a, he had a deep seated problem with the way that he viewed the women close to him. There was uh, no shift. There was absolutely no, no, no not shift at all. at all. Not at all. And I just thought that was so alarming. And I think that was one of the one of the incidents post Nikki's murder that made me go, hang on, there's a problem. And if if there's any good out of this uh terrible situation, then hopefully it is a shift in the way that at least some men view not only their relationship to women, but their relationship unto themselves, like taking some degree of responsibility for what's going on. Can we go back? Because I um, I don't want to give her murderer too much airtime, but I just want to get some context around the length of their relationship, your relationship with him and your parents. Like how long had he been around for? Did you have alarm bells? You know, all of those kind of things. They'd been together for a few years before he took her life, but it wasn't like a uh, kind of veneer of a happy relationship. It always had a, a degree of dysfunction around it. And and I think a lot of that stemmed from the fact that the way that he treated my sister throughout was entirely, in my view, negative. And um, we as a family did not like him. We did not warm to him. Um, and, and frankly, you know, like I remember saying to my mum at some stage that Nikki can do so much better. And in the cruelest of ways, we're right. You know, we're, uh, we can't get more correct than um, someone doing what he did. Uh, and so, yeah, they were together for a few years. We were not close I was not fond of him uh but almost Nikki being the kind hard person that she was uh and so many women who have their lives taken by men close to them they it it, you know people say why didn't she leave well Mm. a she was trying to leave right and that's when he killed her so it's like you know how can that be her fault because that just renders your argument null and void because you're like why didn't she leave well she was trying and he killed her right so there's that point and then secondly i think that they don't want 
they don't want necessarily to have to leave. They, the first thing is I want the abuse to stop. I want the violence to stop. This man says he loves me, but then he also treats me like, you know, dirt or trash. And I'm so disposable to him. So I think there's, there's conversations that I think that we nationally, you know, and maybe even globally are not yet fully comfortable grasping that like abusers aren't some kind of monster. You know, whether regardless of the form of abuse, you know, that uh, that like whether it's child sexual abuse or whether it's violence against women, that abusers are not necessarily the, the type of person that we would just look at and think alarm bells, alarm bells. Oh, my God, get out. Uh, and uh, maybe that's our own sort of uh, mechanisms to think, hang on, people aren't all inherently bad. Maybe there's good there. Maybe they can be helped. Maybe they'll take responsibility. But I think we need to have conversations around the fact that, you know, men who abuse women, men who kill women are not monsters. They're not, um, they're not like the kind of abnormal uh, weirdo. They're pretty normal guys, right? And they didn't just once off snap. They just have these views around women, particularly the women close to them, that they're better, that they're entitled to her, to her body, to her thoughts, opinions. And and that was the same thing for Nikki. That was he, he treated her like an object. You know, I'm in a incredible position that I survived a a, a DV relationship. And I, I'm sure like many other survivors can say these men are incredibly special. You know, they're charismatic. They have kindness in them. They, you do love them. You know, it, it all develops from somewhere. It's not like they're keeping you in a cell underground. There is a relationship that is the foundation, but you are correct in saying it's a type of man that sees gender roles in a specific way and that's there from the beginning. And because women, and like you said before, really want to turn up for men in a certain way, we change habits and behaviours and types, you know, parts of our personality to make them happy, right? So it's this really dangerous dance that the two are taking. And completely, there's, it, is, it is the fault of the perpetrator. It's not the fault of the woman. But I think when you say, why don't you leave or why didn't she tell you or all of those things is if you're in love with somebody that is abusing you, the last thing you're going to want to do is tell your parents or your brother, right, that he's harming you um, because you were hopeful that things will change. I want to ask you, though, had she ever confided in you or had you ever seen any other marks of abuse prior to the murder i hadn't but that's not to say that others hadn't like her friends had i think i think mum had asked her about bruises at one point uh and, and nikki sort of um made light of it like she'd fallen over it was something else and and mum was like you know you can talk to me uh, and the th- the thing is it's so I can't even imagine what that's like for mum, that there's this feeling of guilt, like I could have done something. But 
what I found so alarming in all the conversations I've had in the six years since Nikki was murdered is that we're all, we're, I mean, mum's also a survivor of this, right? That like her child that she, that, that was in her womb for nine months, that she gave birth to, that she raised uh, to, to be an independent woman in, in this fucked up world mm. that, that her daughter was killed. And it's, it's so fascinating to me that still people will ask about and will have conversations, you know, uh, in, in the public, in the community around like, well, what, you know, what could families do or anything rather than going, you know, what, what is it about these men? Like how mm. raising these boys to, to treat women with such utter contempt and what are the drivers of that and where does it stem from? And how do we, how do we fix that problem? rather than thinking it's somehow uh, around other around other people, around the, the, the main victim? Well, I think that's also interesting is a lot of, I mean, I was in a very dark place and desperate place in my life when I met my perpetrator. And I think there's also the question of, well, what was her relationship like with her parents? Was she abused as a child? Was there some cycle that she was open to being manipulated? And, you know, what kind of woman was she? Whereas, like you said, all of these questions are irrelevant. I, I don't think we should be looking at the woman to make up the excuse to why the man did the thing he did. Yeah, there's there's definitely an element of that. I think um I think it I don't want to discount those other conversations because I think they're so important. It's more just as a public response that our our default position is uh is to blame the woman. Yeah. You know, or to question the motives or the actions of the woman. You know, like I remember so she was she was murdered on Friday the 9th of January 2015 and by Sunday once the news the news broke that same day obviously but by by Sunday I was getting messages to my personal like Facebook account from people I'd never met saying well what did the dumb bitch thing <gasps> do and and stuff like that and it was like I didn't I didn't even know how to process it then. Like it didn't seem real, but that's the world that we live in, that people are so ready to go, oh, well, what did she do? Or what was she, we-? you know, in sexual assault cases, well, what was she wearing? Or um, here, was just- she really drunk or was she yeah. this? Or, yeah. yeah. You know, or why was she out so late? You know, or why was her skirt so short or whatever? And it's like, fuck that, man. Like why, What? what is it about this particular dude that thinks that he has a right to do that and I think I think one of the things right that I've that I've noticed is that a lot of men a lot of men will say things and I'm probably guilty of this at some point in my life they're like well I'm not like them because I wouldn't I wouldn't kill a woman you know but but it starts somewhere, right? Like if you think like that women's role is in the kitchen and that women are only meant to be subservient in that way or that uh, women shouldn't get paid the same amount because they somehow don't do the same amount of work or if you in any way don't support equality between the genders, then there's a, there's a seed there, right? And all it takes is... Um, the right conditions for that seed to grow 
And that's the seed that we don't want to grow. You know, we want, I think, the seed of equality, of respect, of compassion, of kindness, of men to sort of break free of the mold that we've been taught for, I want to say centuries, right, around around dominance, around this rigid adherence to, to these ideals that, in, in excess become toxic men can be emotive they can have emotions you know they can and, and they can express them but we're somehow conditioned to think that that makes us a w- weak or effeminate or gay or something you know and it's like no they just make you human mm. can i ask you how that day the friday the ninth did you say it happened in her sleep? Yeah. So, I mean, we weren't there, but that's what the police told us. So um, he, uh, so he, I mean, he killed her with a meat cleaver. <gasps> I remember I woke up that morning and, uh, and I had, I remember it was 10 past seven and I woke up because the, uh, the alarm, uh, sorry, the buzzer on my apartment kept going off. And I just remember thinking, oh, fucking hell, who is a I'm way too tired? I don't want to wake up now. And, uh, and it was the start of the year. So I hadn't gone back to work or anything. And I just wanted to sleep in for the last few days. And then it was mum and dad and they told me what had happened. Uh, but as I, as I was like going from my bedroom to open the apartment front door, I picked up my iPhone and I saw like, I can't remember, like 37 missed calls, something like a huge amount of missed calls from mum's mobile and dad's mobile. And to this day, I'll never understand how the police let my parents get behind the wheel of a car to drive to my apartment. It's not far, it's like 15 minutes, but still crazy thought, right? Like they've yeah. told my parents that your daughter has been murdered and we have a man in custody and then they're like, okay, we're leaving now, uh, but homicide squad will contact you. And in that time, not thinking, do you have anywhere you need to go or do you have anyone you need to speak to mm. can we inform them or can we, can we get them a cab or an Uber to here or we'll get you there. You can ride in the cop car, just basic stuff. Right. And I think that's hopefully changed, but I remember, you know, months down the track just thinking about that and that's the kind of thing when you know when when services whether it's police or organizations you know counseling services whatever and they're like what can we do differently i'm like this like do not let anyone who's just been told that a that a family member has been a victim of violent crime do not let them get behind the wheel of a car because you're probably putting a position for other tragedies to occur um just because their judgment and their um you know their their faculties are going to be impaired, but yeah. So that so they mum and dad came over, and then yeah they told me, and I just yeah I remember seeing their faces, and mum's eyes were just like bloodshot red, and dad just looked fundamentally broken, like he didn't know what to say, he couldn't string together a sentence, and then I knew in that moment. I think I was like, fuck, like I'm going to have to figure something out here. And it was like, it was like almost a bit of a role reversal. Like I had to become the parent uh, 
just because mom and dad were like, what's happening? And, and it took, it didn't take long for the media to get in touch, you know, particularly commercial media, because they were like, we need to get the story out. It's broken. It's, it's salacious. And he's used like this really horrific weapon. It's like, it's like the, it's just like the Netflix true crime documentaries. We can get something from this. And so my, I don't know who gave them my phone number. I don't know if, whether it was someone that had it from years ago and then it circulated, but all of a sudden I'm getting messages to my phone. And this is before we've spoken to the homicide squad. And this is before any of that, the media is already like, you know, sending me pictures of her that they'd taken off Facebook. And they were like, they weren't even asking, can we use this? They were just like, we're using this. What do you want to say? Yeah. And so ever since I've been quite uh, openly critical of the media and quite openly instructive of the media that like, if we're going to report on these crimes, which we must do in the public interest, then the way that we approach victim survivors, families, particularly in the aftermath of violent crime, and then in telling their stories, we, we can't disempower them. We can't take that, you know, we can't take the, the worst thing that's happened to them and then add pain through our ignorance or our need to just, you know, put out a story. Like this need to be first is not is not actually helping anyone. Um so yeah, that day was just was just inundated with that stuff. And then we started talking to the police and it was it was sometime on Saturday afternoon uh when all of these, you know, friends and, and family had sort of descended on our childhood home that one of my friends walked in the door and he he gave me a hug and that's when I burst out crying. The day that my sister was murdered, I don't remember crying. But the next day, I I think it started it started to hit that this is something that had happened. And then obviously, you know, you go through all these stages and process of grief. But initially it was that. Initially it was just... Uh, a blind side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because the day before we'd, we'd spoken and she, and she said she wouldn't miss it for the world, right? It was nothing important, but she said she wouldn't miss it for the world. And then the next day she's dead. It's kind of important. It's kind of the best message ever, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean... You know, it's like you look back at those moments and you go, fuck, it's just the best message ever. Yeah, she, I mean, I've still got her in my iPhone favorites saved there. Uh, and whenever I, whenever iCloud updates, or whatever, there's two things I check. One is that I've still got her in my favorites, and then the other is I go into um, the messages and make sure, and I have to scroll like all the way near the bottom to get to 2015, and then find that one message from her that says have you screenshot it too just in case oh of course of course but it's something about it being there in a form right it's still there and i just i like you hold on to it right Mm -hmm. so many things when you lose someone and i mean murder is is unique because i mean someone else made a choice to take their life but it could be anything you lose someone to cancer you lose someone even like if you lose a grandparent or a parent and they live a very full life, there's still that feeling, you know, like I'll I'll watch movies or I'll, I'll listen to a song and I'll just, 
I almost reach for my phone sometimes instinctively to want to message Nikki and be like, hey, I think you'd really like this. Or, you know, you should come over and we should watch this together. I really want to know what you think. Uh, but you can't, you know, and that's the, I think that's the the cruelest part of it. It's not, um, it's not the big stuff. It's just the, it's the little things about being able to live your lives as, as brother and sister or, you know, siblings. Because it's quite nice, you know, that she wouldn't miss it for the world to hang out with you. Like, you know, we get busy and we have our lives and our relationships and, but you guys were still, you know, on a Sunday doing your thing together. Yeah. I, I, I think it's cute, but I also think that that's probably a testament to her more than me uh, or even at my relationship with Nikki. It's it's a testament to who she was as a person that she would put others first, that she valued their time, she valued their thoughts, their emotions, their feelings. I, rem- I remember Nikki's funeral, right? And I, I just remember seeing so many people and thinking, fuck, like, people loved her like that. I mean, I mean, and this sounds somewhat morbid, but, I mean, I often think that, like, if you die if you die younger, then more people arguably will come to your funeral, right? Uh, just because it's it's more tragic and you've probably got more friends and stuff. But there were so many people. I just remember getting there and just feeling so overwhelmed. But then I, you know, in time I've thought about it and I've thought like, hang on, Nikki was always there for other people. You know, like she didn't put up boundaries with other people where she didn't need to put them up you know she was so giving of herself of her time of her energy um of love that that it, it's only natural that that was reciprocated and that people when she died felt her loss so i mean i still get messages i got a message uh, about less than 24 hours ago from someone who was like, we've never met and I've never written to you, but I went to school with your sister and it's taken me years, but I read something and it reminded me of her and I just wanted to reach out. And then they'll tell me about a memory from theatre studies in year 11 that they had together or uh, like a sports day at school. Just so many scenarios. And I'm like, wow, like you, you mean you share these moments together and they happened, but you lived them together and and it it left a mark on you, you know, years later. Um, Whereas I I wonder, you know, with so many of us, like, are we living the life that is as compassionate as it can be, as kind as it can be, um, and as empathetic towards other people as it can be or should be? Mm. Um, So I think that's something that I try and take from, from Nikki, that, like, I can be a better person. The evening that she was murdered... How did your parents find out? Did the perpetrator hand himself in? Did someone call the cops? What was that link? Yeah, right. So how did it happen? So he, well, he, I mean, he handed himself in, 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 I mean, that's putting it politely. He didn't really hand himself in so much. He called triple zero. Mm after he killed her and he just told them what he did. And then the triple zero call operator was a bit like, what? 
like taken aback because he was so matter of fact about it. And the judge pointed out because he had zero remorse, like even during the court process, it to him, it was like a, like he genuinely felt like it was an acceptable course of action for him to take. It was deserved. Yeah. Yeah. In his mind, definitely. That's, that's what I mean. So he makes the call. They come and do their thing. They contact your parents. Yeah, right. So they, I mean, they didn't. So after he did it, he called. And then, I mean, to give you an idea of how much of a coward this person is, he he called them and then they were like, is she still breathing? And then he said, oh, I don't know. I'm too scared to go and look at it. The thing you just did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and it was like you stabbed someone with a meat cleaver, slit her throat, uh, and we um, we had to go to court. Uh, sorry, the coroner's court and uh, identify her body. And that's something that I did to, you know, make sure that it was actually her. Oh, my God. And I remember having to read this report and it said that she'd sustained no fewer than 35 separate problems. And I I remember asking them and I was like, why does it say that? And they were kind of reluctant to tell me. And I was like, no, I I would like you to tell me. Like, if you think I can't handle it, maybe I can't, but I want to find out for myself. And what they explained to me was that they couldn't count any more than 35. Like after that point, it was just like, it could be more. But we can definitely identify 35 separate entry points. And I just think that is so fucked up. Like that, you know, that, and then, and so the way, so he did this and then he was like, I'm too scared to go look at it. And it was like, what, what are you scared about? You did this. Uh, and, and, and then he left, like he left her and, uh, and then he just went, he just went walking. And then I think the police picked him up like two or three kilometers away. Was he still in the original clothing and everything? Did he just leave? I think so. Yeah. I think he was like, yeah, I think he was in like the middle of the night, just covered in, covered in blood, I guess. Yeah. And that's the thing, right? That's why like the next day the media contacted me because they had some information from the police and they were like, oh, this looks like a scene from a very gruesome true crime story. So we will then just get the inside scoop from the family. And I say inside scoop deliberately because that's what it felt like. It didn't feel like there was like... They cared. Yeah, it wasn't like, we're really sorry for your loss. Is there something you want to say? Tell me about who she was or how are you feeling? Or can you know can we help you say a message to people so this doesn't happen? It wasn't any of that stuff. It was just... We want the story and we want it now. And we want to be first. Because if someone had like, say, you know, say Channel 7 did it first or whatever, then Channel 10 and 9 couldn't do it. And uh, it was, yeah, it was just horrible in that respect. So Were they they offering money as well to have the exclusive? Were they doing that kind of stuff? I can't remember if they did that at the time, but it certainly happened since. I've never, I've never accepted any money ever from any media outlet to talk about it. I just, to me, that just feels so wrong. You know, like, I, I well, I've never accepted the money, nor have we ever had, like, a any kind of arrangement where it's like, 
oh, you can donate money to so-and-so. Um, the thing for me in particular um, was that it was really important to me that Nikki had some kind of a voice. Um, so I actually just started writing my own stuff. And I always tried to do it in the way that I thought she would want it to be done, which is to be like really honest, even if it's painful or self-deprecating or feels painful to do. But it's done in a way that is honest and is and has heart. Mm. And I, for me, that was that was the key thing that it had to be done. It had to be done in an honest way. Um, and sometimes one of the, I mean, one of the things about when it came to commercial media was that they didn't, they didn't have a platform for that. You know, they didn't, they didn't do anything that allowed you to, to talk about it in the way that say. The, the way that we're talking about it, you know, uh, that just, that didn't exist. So it, it, it was, it was kind of hard. And then once, I mean, once the story had broken, that's it. They didn't want the scoop anymore. Um, but I think one of the things that I'm quite happy is the wrong word, but I, I'm glad that I didn't, you know, I'm glad that I didn't succumb to that pressure because they're obviously, they know what they're doing. Right. And when one woman a week has been killed, there's a, there's a family somewhere, you know, that family that lost um, their loved one uh, just overnight in, in, you know, just near Geelong in Victoria, they, uh, they're going through that. They're going through a similar experience now. That's the thing. It's the impact, isn't it? It's like now she's gone and you and her friends and your parents and the extended family it, it still exists. It's still there. How do you, first of all, how do you accept it? And do you forgive the perpetrator? Does that feel congruent? Where are you at with all of that? I think in terms of acceptance, I went through this process where what I realized uh, and this, I mean, this is not like instructed. This is not advice to anyone. So anyone listening, it's like, if, if you hear what I'm about to say and it's relevant to you and you think, hang on, I like this way of thinking by all means, take it on board. But like, I'm not like, I'm not a psychologist or anything where I'm like, this is what you need to do. And this is how it works. But for me, and this is probably my own personality type, but for me, what I found is that more more answers didn't lead to more closure. It's not like it's not like I asked a question, someone gave me an answer, and I went, "Okay, great. I feel better." Yeah. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. It didn't even start that process. 
it didn't even it didn't even commence that sort of line of thinking for me. It was basically ask a question, get an answer. Okay, great. Here's another question. Here's another question. Here's another 500 questions based on that one answer that you gave me. And let's nitpick it to a fault. And let's drive yourself into a spiral of downward anxiety leading into depression and then exacerbate every other issue that you've had, every other health issue, you know, like stress is a, is a trigger for other things in life, right? Or grief is a trigger for other things in life. Get really sick, feel like shit, uh, you know, self-medicate, all that stuff. Mm. Just because you're trying to find something, you're trying to, you're trying to find closure, right? And so what I learned for myself and, and this might apply to other people. I, I really, I don't know. But what I learned is that closure is what you do for yourself. Acceptance is what you do for yourself. You don't, you don't do it for the other person. You don't do it for the person you've lost. You certainly don't do it for perpetrators. But you do it so that you can get up every day and just in the face of adversity or in the face of loss, try to do something that feels good to you so that you're not you're not like a zombie. You're not just dead inside, right? So, so that, that process for me came about because I was like, okay, today I'm going to accept this reality and I'm not going to let it define the way that I look at the situation, that I have I'm no control over the situation and what's happened, but I actually have a lot of control over how I'm going to think about this. So that was my way of getting to a point of acceptance. You know, like I'm very, like I'm nothing that I do now, nothing that anyone does now will bring Nikki back, but things that I do or that we as a society do in terms of tackling, whether it's toxic masculinity, gender inequality, the patriarchy, all of these sort of nebulous concepts, all of the little things that we do as, as individuals in our homes, in our communities, in our workplaces, with the people that we love, uh, the little things are going to make it so that it doesn't happen to other people, you know, and we're not all doing enough because it's still happening and it's still happening at a rate that's really alarming. Uh, so, so that was like my, that was like my way of getting to acceptance. And then as for, I mean, as for the perpetrator, what I, what I saw of him during the court process and his lack of remorse. And there's one memory in particular, which is that, you know, when, I mean, when people go to prison, they have gyms there, right? Mm. And so he just worked out a lot in prison. And I remember him sitting in the dock in the Supreme Court of Victoria and the judge is talking, and I can't remember what the judge was saying, but it was, I mean, it's a murder uh, case, so it's obviously serious by nature of what we're all there for. But even in the context of that, whatever was being said at the time was pretty important. And you'd think that if you're the accused, you'd be listening to every word that the judge says, because this is, I mean, obviously your life as well. And he wasn't doing that. Like he wasn't listening. He was like looking down at his triceps and like flexing and seeing kind of like whether they're both proportional or symmetrical or whatever the fuck he was doing. I don't know. But I just remember thinking in that moment and subsequently, fuck man, this is a, this is an individual that I just don't understand. Like so far removed 
from the way that I view things. Where like I'm like if I've if I've hurt somebody, I want to make it right. Mm. You know, I don't the idea that you that you can have bad blood or the idea that you like leave things uh as is, to me that's that's foreign to me. It's like you want things to be um you want things to be good. You want to leave things good, like well. But for him, like he's not only has he done this act that I just can't fathom, right? Because it's not it's not something that I think is an appropriate course of action, right? For me, if it's like, um, and this is regardless of gender, but particularly in the context of violence against women, where women are killed in separation, like when when guys break up with women, women don't kill the guy, right? They they, they don't. They, I mean, I don't know. You could tell me what, what women do, but they don't go on mass killing. Whereas like men who are rejected often seek to hurt the other person. Um, and I mean, I'm sure women do. I'm sure there are manipulative women and I'm sure there are all kinds of women who do all kinds of things, right? Um, because often one of the things that we hear is like, oh, women are violent too, or women are this, or women are that. And it's strange to me because it's like, well, I've never said otherwise, you know. But the notion that the notion that women are killing men, that's, I mean, that's not based in fact. That's, that's not founded. That's not true. They're not killing men anywhere near the extent that, men are killing women. And when they are, there's often aspects of self-defense or other things at play. Um, so for me, in terms of forgiveness, I didn't, I didn't even broach the question because I didn't understand the person. I was just like, I was like, I'm going to do what feels right for me. And I don't, I mean, I don't wish him any harm because that's just who I am as a person. I'm not someone that believes in taking revenge against people. I don't, I don't believe in the death penalty. And I mean, I, I've trained and studied and am a lawyer. I, so I, ha- I have the legal understanding. I also happen to have someone, uh, my, well, my sister, and, and to be quite reductive about it, someone who shares, I mean, we share 50% of the same DNA, right? So 50% of whatever's going on in, in, you know, at a biological level is, the fucking same. And yet, so I feel qualified, right, to say, to give an opinion, right? And, and anyone can have an opinion. But for me, like, I don't support the death penalty for anybody, regardless of what they've done. And my reasoning is just, I think that if we do that, then we're all collectively diminished, you know? And I'm not saying, like, I'm happy with how we deal with these problems. No, I'm just saying that, executing someone because they've done something that is just so horrific. I don't like that idea. I don't like that idea that we're going to, that's how we're going to deal with it. Um, and so, yeah, I guess maybe in a roundabout way I've forgiven him because of how I live my life, but I never actually approached the question. And can you tell me what sentence someone gets for murdering somebody in their sleep? So he got a non-parole period of 22 years, um, but a parole period of 17. But because they count it from the day that he's arrested, there was a year that lapsed, you know, going to and from court where he was like, he was in jail, but on remand. Like, Mm -hmm. so he wasn't 
doing whatever they have to like work or whatever they have to do in jail, which is probably why he has so much time to work out. Um, but yeah, so he, so it's one, it's technically like one year less than that. So uh, at the time that he murdered my sister, he was 32. So, I mean, add 21 to that, uh, 53. So it's something that I broached, right. And thought about, which is that this guy will spend most of his life outside of prison. Mm. And he did murder someone consciously. Like he made a, he made a choice to go and get the most fucked up weapon that he had in the, in the home. Right. And, and do this. But I mean, at the, at the end of the day, me talking about it or me crying about it, it's not going to change anything. Like Nikki stays dead. Um, I'm angry about the opportunities that she has lost. As for me being angry about uh, how much time he spends in prison, all that stuff, I'm just like, to what to what end and for whose benefit? Because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna feel better. You know, I might think I'll feel better, but I don't think I actually will. You know, I'll feel better. I'll feel better when we have say a month of no women in Australia being murdered by a man that claims to love them or at one point claim to love them because then I'll be like, hang on, maybe we're seeing progress. Mm. Our final question for everyone that speaks on the deep is who are you when no one's watching? Uh, That is a very good question. And I wish that I had thought of something to say. Who am I when no one's watching? Uh, well, I mean, social media is always watching now, so maybe that doesn't apply. But who am I? I'm probably, I'm, I'm lying in bed on my phone, um, scrolling through uh, meme accounts, uh, which is my self-care strategy. And I, know, <laughs> and I know that when I have dropped the phone for the third time on my face at 2 a.m., that it is then time to call it a night and set an alarm for the morning. That's probably me when no one's watching. And I think, in my defence, I think that there are so many meme accounts because a lot of us are doing the exact same thing at two in the morning, like just scrolling and being like, ha-ha, that's so funny, ha-ha, that's me, that's totally me, um, and, and just finding validation. I think after all the lockdowns that you know, we've been through all over the world. I think more of us are doing that because we've just, we ran out of books to read. We ran out of other content and it was just, it was all memes. So that's, that's me at two in the morning. Memes is self-care. I think that's my new favorite thing. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Zoe. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. If it's left you with any burning questions for me or our guests, please hit us up by direct message on Instagram at What's the Deep. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
Hi everybody, it is Zoe here. Change is coming to the deep. I want to welcome you to Arise. It's uplifting, it's quirky, it's curious. It's all about the mindset and self-discovery to be more helpful and of service. During 16 of the Deep, you will hear some of these episodes and I'd love to hear what you think of them over on our Instagram at What's the Deep.